Alrighty, we are back. I hope you guys had a good weekend. Wanted to do just a, a easy video here, go through a lot of different questions that you guys have had. So I'm gonna give an update on the portfolio. I haven't done that for a while. The last video was more focused on risk and a principal investing. So I'm gonna do a really quick update on this portfolio. I'm gonna answer one question that's been asked a lot. And that is, when people look at this portfolio, and they see it broken up in the sectors. I have it organized in this way where it's I, I picked pretty much a bunch of the biggest sectors that I want to invest in. And then I picked individual stocks that go into each one of these that fit certain criteria that I look for. But I have like 30, almost 38,000 in this. Now, a lot of people are like, well, what if I only have 500 bucks? What if I have $2,000? would you change what you're doing? And that's one of the things I'm going to answer in this video. So I'll be going over that. I'll be responding to a lot of different questions. I have like five or six questions lined up that I'm going to be responding to. And then the last thing is this isn't really investing related at all, but I want to give my opinion on the ending of Game of Thrones and how I would have wrote the ending. So I'll, I'll let you know in advance before I do that part so I don't spoil anything if you haven't seen it, but I'm going to be doing that at the very end as well. So first, uh, I just want to start with a quick update. This portfolio, I mean, the market's been, I think for the past month, it's actually been down. My portfolio is just up a hair, 0.3%. But for a one month period, we've earned $118 in dividends. As far as the activity goes, what I've been paid, I have not, it's actually been kind of a drought for dividends. So I had one that was just four days ago here, but it was just a buck 20 from Apple. It's one of my smaller holdings and they don't pay a hefty dividend. And then this one was from five days ago. It was $16.40 that, that bought a few fractional shares. So not too many dividends have come in in the past two weeks. And that's bound to happen. All these different companies have different days they pay out. Sometimes the dividends I get a little bit more some weeks than I do others. If I actually look here on the week period and I look how many I've earned, earned dividends is $63 for the week. Earning $63 in dividends in a week is pretty good. As you know, earned dividends, they show up here. They show up on this all-time right here. Like if I go to all-time, my earned dividends is $869. They show up here before they show up in the activity feed. It's like if you're working at your job, you actually earn your money day by day before you're paid it by the end of the week or the, you know, the end of the two-week paying period or whatever. It's the, kind of the same way it works with stocks. Having said that, dividends are rolling in. Things are compounding. I love just being able to have this passive income and seeing this number go up faster and faster. If I go to the one month period, if I see how many I've earned from April 20th, it's been $118. One quarter has been $353 in one quarter. So that number, this last 90 days keeps increasing and increasing. The last 90 days, I keep earning more and more and more. That's what I like to see. But now to the, the main thing. A lot of people have been asking about different portfolios here with different money amounts or different like stages in life. What if I'm you know younger and I only have a 500, 600 bucks or something like that to invest? If I go into my portfolio, I have a lot of companies. So I have a bunch of them in real estate. I have utilities, finance, I have a lot of them. Consumer, I have a bunch of companies as well. And all of these, I have a lot of companies. I have more than the average person. I have about 55 different companies I own. And the question asked is, if I had $500, how many companies would I own? What I did is I created a bunch of pies for you guys. And I'm going to share these in the description. But there's really two main ones. So one of the questions I was asked was, how do you create a portfolio like this where you have the one main pie and all of these are broken into these sub pies. So the thing that you would do to make it so that you can have sub pies within your main portfolio is you hit create new pie. 
Now, instead of just picking like funds or stocks here, you can actually add in your pie. So I can create a pie and then I can add in the bonds pie, the utilities, the telecom, the whatever. Then I hit add and those add as sub pies. So that's what I did here. I have a, one that's called dividend ETF portfolio, an individual starter portfolio. The first one that I wanted to show you guys was the dividend ETF portfolio. I created this for people that are new to the investing game that don't have a lot of experience and they're not quite sure of what companies to pick. You can go through my series and I try to explain as best I can how I pick the stocks that I do. It's based off of a investing strategy called dividend growth investing, where I pick companies that grow their dividends year over year, that have a certain amount of stability, that I think have good future prospects. But doing that, if you're starting off, you don't know how to analyze companies or, or to see if they're a good bet, and you'd rather just avoid that altogether, this is the alternative. Investing in ETFs is the alternative to that, and it's a great alternative. Part of being a good investor is knowing what you're good at and what you're not good at, and knowing what you don't know. If you're not comfortable with picking individual companies, there's nothing to be ashamed of with that. It doesn't make you like a more serious investor, a more hardcore investor if you pick individual companies. There's nothing great about picking individual companies. It just gives you a little bit more control. For the people that rather pick ETFs and not have to worry about the stress of picking individual companies, an exchange-traded fund and ETF is a basket of companies that fit these metrics for you and you don't have to pick them. These ETFs automatically update. And what I did with this pie was I put together a lot of ETFs that I think mimic my portfolio that's based off of dividend growth and having a compounding snowball of dividends come in. My opinion, these are great ETFs. You have a, a couple bond ones and then you have three basic dividend ones. One of them is SPHD, which I think is a fantastic dividend ETF. We'll go into this one first. This is what makes up the majority of this pie that I put together. It has a 4% dividend yield, really high dividend yield. The number of holdings is 51. So there's 51 companies in this ETF and it, it keeps right around 50. And like I said, I explained how this one works before. What it does is they look at the S&P 500, which is the 500 biggest companies in the US market, basically. And they take the 75 highest paying dividends they back test them for volatility and they take the 25 most volatile out of those 75 and they remove them. So that leaves you with around the 50 least volatile, highest dividend yielding companies in the S&P 500. But this ETF, it has a little bit high of an expense ratio. 0.3 is on the high side. I don't think, I mean, that's splitting cares in my opinion to be too concerned about that expense ratio. The nice thing about this one is it does pay monthly. Not only do you get a really high dividend yield, if I go to the one year period here, look at that you're getting these dividend payments every single month. And I think that that ups the amount of compounding, especially in M1 Finance, where the fractions, you can buy fractional shares and keep buying into these funds. So that's the first one in this portfolio. This one, I called it the dividend ETF portfolio. The next one's VYM. This is Vanguard. It has a 3% dividend yield. The expense ratio on everything Vanguard is super low. So 0.06%. Virtually no expense ratio. It's not even a factor with this one. The number of holdings, much higher. So this is a much more diversified ETF. So even though it has a percent lower dividend yield, you're a lot more diversified. You're invested in a lot more companies with this one. Uh, this one does not pay monthly. It pays quarterly. So you get four bigger payments four times a year. But I think that's fine. You have one that's paying monthly, you have one that's paying quarterly, and you know you get that snowball working and, and this just helps 
fuel it, right? And then this one, top holdings, you know, you got Johnson Johnson, JP Morgan. There is going to be some crossover. If I was going to do a Venn diagram, there would be a lot of companies that are in both of these that are that they're sharing in, with each other. But I don't see anything wrong with that. VYM has a lot of other companies that aren't shared between the two. I have 45% put into SPHD. I have 20% into VYM. And you can change these percentages around too. I just threw these percentages together of what I think would make a pretty good dividend mix. The next thing is LQD, which is where you earn interest off of bonds. This is iShares, iBox, investment grade corporate bond. There's a couple different type of type of bonds. Investment grade bonds means that they're the highest rated bonds for a company. Corporate bonds means they're company bonds, not government, not municipalities, corporations. It's highly diversified. They have 2,000 different holdings in this. It has a lot of assets under management. I like to find, people ask me, why don't I use the Vanguard one, right? It has a little bit lower expense ratio, but iShares has a much bigger assets under management. So I feel like this has a lot more liquidity because of the amount of assets under management. With something that the underlying asset is a bond, which is not a liquid asset, I like to find something that has a, a high amount of assets under management. So you make sure that you can sell out of these ETFs whenever you want. If I look at the one-year chart here, you can see that it pays monthly as well. Investing in this, it's a little bit less risky than the other two funds. LQD is less risky than these. I forgot to mention that it has a 3.56% dividend yield, which is, again, pretty high. All three of these are getting a really high dividend yield on them. Uh, two of these pay monthly. One of them pays quarterly. Then I have 10% into shy. This is one to three year treasury bonds, pays 2%. The reason I like this is because it's kind of like having like a high yield savings account built right into your portfolio that pays you out these dividend disbursements every month. And I think it's a good thing to have. If we ever had like a really big pullback, if we ever have a 20% correction, you could just remove this slice from your portfolio and then it would sell it and disperse it back into all these holdings that are down. So you can use this as kind of like dry powder. You can use it to sell if the market turns down. And I mean, it helps you get a little bit less volatility. If you're wanting to go ultra aggressive, just remove shy. That's a, just removing any treasury bonds. You can do that and then you can go a little bit more aggressive. And then the other thing that I have, the last one is the Vanguard real estate. About 10% of SPHD's real estate, a little bit of UIM is. But Vanguard real estate is a super diversified, it's 100% real estate. They have 190 holdings. 3.78 dividend yield. It pays quarterly, but this pays really heavy dividends every quarter. All of these put together, you're just getting cash flow all the time. You have these two that pay monthly, this one that pays monthly, and these two that pay quarterly. And this portfolio would create virtually a constant monthly stream of cash that would always be reinvesting back into it. The target allocation, I think is pretty good like this, but you can change that around and even add in different funds that you want. I think that this portfolio, and I'll link this in the description, is a fantastic place for people to start that do not want the hassle of picking individual stocks. You literally just put your money in this and you'd never have to update it again. You'd never have to touch it again for 30 years. Uh, this will just do its thing and keep reinvesting in itself. All you have to do is keep putting money in it. So that's the brilliance of a ETF. I compare ETFs to like a Pandora radio station. You find the kind of music you want and it just keeps playing the same type of music that's what these etfs do you find the type of etf you want and they will just keep finding the same type of companies that fit into that so i think they're a fantastic thing it doesn't make you any less of an investor 
Does it make you any less hardcore to not use individual companies? If this is more of an appealing option than having the stress of second guessing yourself, if you're worried, oh man, did I choose the right company? Should I be investing in all these individual companies? Should I be doing this one? If you don't want to spend the research or the time, you want to spend your time doing other stuff, just use these. They're fantastic. Moving on from that. So before I go into this, I actually wanted to just show you guys how I do the thing where I have a pie inside of a pie. So if you don't know how to do this, I'll do this real quick. I created in this one, the individual dividend starter, all the, I have utilities and real estate, telecom bonds, healthcare, industrials, consumer, energy, tech. I'm missing financial, okay? I'll show you how to add financial to this pie. What you do is you go back to my pies. Let's hit create new pie up here. And then let's go down to financial services. I'll go ahead and I'll just add the top two companies, JPM and Visa. We'll hit add. Okay, then I'll hit edit. I'll give it a nice name. I'll call it financial starter. I'll put them each to 50%. Then I'll hit save. And this is just how you create a pie. So I'm just creating a random pie right now. If I go back to my pies here, I have financial starter and it's not used anywhere. Then I go to right here, individual starter, click on that. Financial isn't in here, so what I need to do is hit edit. Now I go and I click add. And then instead of clicking stocks or funds here, I add my pie right here. And then I hit financial, I hit add. I set a percentage to it. Let's bring down all of these and I hit save. And voila, I just added a pie inside of this portfolio. So now I have financials inside of here, right here. For the people asking, they wanna do the same type of portfolio but they're asking what I would do if I had less money. Notice that on my portfolio, I have 60 holdings. On this one, I only have 23. Just as an example, I went in and I created all the same sectors, but instead of adding like five or six companies in each of them, I added only one or two. I would just pick your favorite companies for each sector, just like one or two of your favorite companies for each sector. So on the utilities and real estate, I have three on each. Telecom, I believe I have two, and that's how it is most of the time. Finance, I have two. Bonds, I just have LQD and SHY, and then I just set them to different percentages. If I go to my portfolio here, I've been asked another question of where I pick these percentages. What I did was I look at my pie and I have about a 4.2% yield, and I adjusted these percentages to get right around a 4% yield. That's kind of where I wanna keep. If you push your overall portfolio beyond 4% by too much, either you're sacrificing growth, capital appreciation, or you're putting yourself in a pretty risky situation because you're pushing those dividends really high. I think 4% is the area that you don't want to venture too far beyond for an overall portfolio. So mine's right at 4.2%. That's where I like to keep it as a starting yield. As far as which ones, I try to up, give the ones the biggest percentage that I think pay not only big dividends, but like utilities, finance, healthcare, just ones that are, are pretty broad, big industries that pay big dividends. Energy's too cyclical. Same with industrials, very cyclical, very unpredictable. So I try, to, I try to keep the ones that are more predictable, more boring, like real estate, bonds, and utilities are all boring and predictable. Finance and healthcare are a little bit less predictable. They have some challenges with government regulation stuff. And then consumer and telecom and industrials, tech and energy on the bottom. You can change this percentage up. I know a lot of people using this pie are using my portfolio are changing up this percentage and moving it around, but I've based it off of which ones I think pay higher dividends and are more predictable. So that's what I've done with mine. Now, if we go back, let's go back to here, my pies, individual starter. So there's no, there's nothing special about this pie. 
But what I would do for people that are wondering what I would do with like $1,000 or $2,000, and I wanted to do the same type of uh, strategy where you pick your own div- your own dividend stocks, is I would go into each of these sectors and I'd pick one or two of your absolute favorite companies in those sectors. One that you're comfortable ho- holding in a downturn, ones that you've researched, you know, the products they sell, you know, their business strategy. You've looked at the charts of their dividend history and Seeking Alpha, and you believe that they're good companies that have a lifespan of far more than five years, that you've looked out and you've seen that they're going to be relevant in five plus years. And I would pick just one or two companies in each sector. And then as your portfolio grows, as you get more and more money in it, then you can look to be adding stocks to it on a, on a very gradual basis. Because 23 holdings is a lot. I mean, that's a lot. Even if you had five or 10,000, that's plenty of holdings, right? I have 60 in mine. I'm moving up a little bit in the amount of money I have. I think 60 is still a lot though. Like 60 holdings is probably the most that I'll ever have in my portfolio. So the only time I'll add in new holdings is is probably if I sell ones that I already have. That's what I would do for people looking for starter pack portfolios, a place to start if you have lower amounts of capital to work with. I'm going to leave these two portfolios. The dividend ETF one, again, I can't stress this enough. Use this portfolio if you don't know what you're doing picking stocks, if you're constantly second-guessing yourself, if you're not confident in your strategy. This won't, I mean, this doesn't insure you against the market. These can fall in value just like the general stock market, but it does make it so that you're automatically diversified, that you automatically own a lot of different companies and that, you know, you don't have to worry about the stress of picking individual companies. This one, the individual starter one, I'll leave this and you can use it as a template to start adding in your own companies and removing these ones. And again, adjust these percentages of how you want. Like I said, this has a 3.5% dividend yield. I think that's fine. I would not push it far past 4%. Moving on from that, I'm going to go ahead and uh, answer some questions. The first one, this one actually made me kind of kind of sad reading it. I felt there was some despair in this email. This is from someone named Sam. He emailed in a, a few days ago. And I'll just read this situation and tell you guys what I think. Hi, Joseph. Maybe you can use this as a topic in a future video. I'd love to hear your thoughts. To me, dividend investing seems like a young man's game. Time plus capital gets you where you need to be in 20 to 30 years. But as an old timer like myself, who is in the mid 40s, do you think dividend investing is a viable option? A little about myself. Like many people my age, no one taught me about investing your money. YouTube didn't exist when I was growing up and channels like yours were not around to educate me. So I had to learn on my own, which unfortunately was only after I'd turned 40 and couldn't avoid looking at retirement in the face anymore. Be brutally honest. Do you think dividend investing is even remotely possible for somebody in the mid 40s? I didn't even start my IRA until age 40 and have been contributing to it ever since. He goes on explaining, you know, his efforts so far. The basic question of this email is he's in his 40s. He hasn't been putting much away for his retirement, and he's wondering if a strategy like dividend investing, which is the whole principle of it is compounding compounding your investments over time with dividend payouts, right? So he's wondering if that's a viable option. Now, I don't think, I mean, it, this one here, this email sounds pretty, uh, like he's, he's pretty bummed out in this email is what it sounds like, and I don't think he needs to be. I look at the demographics of my YouTube channel. And the biggest demographic is 25 to 35, but the second biggest by not not too much smaller is 35 to 45. And I get emails all the time from people that I think are in that demographic that are just starting their retirements. 
So, Sam, don't get too concerned about this. Like, you're not in a situation that you can't make up for this time. Uh, I was actually just talking to a buddy about this. His uncle is entering into his late 40s and hasn't done really anything for retirement. And he was having the same conversation where he's worried that he's lost too much ground, too much time, and that he's not going to be able to make up for it. I totally disagree. I don't know how familiar you guys are with the Dave Ramsey show, right? Uh, His is all about getting out of debt. But he has a part on it called the, it's like this um, bit that he does on it, where he brings like a couple on or people on where they got out of debt and he has them do the debt-free scream. And that's where they go, I'm debt-free. And it has all the cheering and stuff. And what he always asks them is how much debt they paid off, what they were making and how much time it took them. And a lot of these people, they have debt of like 110,000, you know, 100 plus thousand. They're making like 60 or 70,000 a year and they pay it off in like two and a half years. I mean, they're paying insane amounts of debt per year. And my thinking is if people have that much willpower, that much drive to get out of debt that quickly, within a couple of years, they can pay off $110,000. let us assume that you're not in massive amounts of debt, right? You might be in your 40s, but you're not in massive amounts of debt, at least consumer debt. You might have a mortgage, but you don't have $110,000 in uh, school debt or something like that. Now, if you applied that same logic, if they can get out of debt, 110,000 in two and a half years, just apply it to investing. If you really wanted to, if you really dug deep and you cut out a ton of your spending and made your savings rate like 50%, 50% of your income you're saving, you could probably save up a huge amount of money in just a couple of years. And there's research that suggests this. So I found this article on the Wall Street Journal and I'm not going to go over the whole thing, but it talks about people that are really behind on the retirement and a lot of research suggests that they, they can make up the ground. As far as dividend investing strategy, I think it's a totally viable strategy. You have to do most of pushing of the snowball yourself at the start. To get it started, you're going to have to do a lot of the work because you don't have the compounding effect. You don't have the time on your side. So you're going to have to really just get this thing going yourself. And part of that, I mean, is going to be digging deep, changing your lifestyle, investing a huge portion of your money and really really building up a portfolio. I don't think that you have anything to fret about. I think a couple years of really dedicated savings and you can make up for decades of lost ground. So, I mean, if you do that early on in life, like I think it's easier, but that's all hindsight. You have plenty of time, plenty of time. You just got to get going and got to stay motivated and really just build it up quick. I'll move on. I have a couple more questions to go over. I have like three or four. Uh, The second one is from Eric Lynn. He says, hey, Joseph, great videos. I've watched them all and love your content. When you say you will sell a stock when they cut their dividend, do you mean when they cut their dividend completely or when they lower the dividend payout? Okay, so this is a great question. Uh, Cut the dividend can mean a lot of different things, right? Um, It depends a little on the situation. I will say in the majority of cases, if a company reduces its dividend at all, I'll probably sell it. There's a few exceptions, and those are companies with really high dividends. Companies like NLY, NRZ, Maine, these mortgage REITs and financial companies that have super high dividends to begin with, if they cut theirs a little bit, I'm not going to sell them because they're not really dividend growth companies. They're more just high yield or companies. But I mean, if a, just a, your average company that has a 2 or 3% dividend cuts it, I'm probably going to sell that company and put it into one that hasn't cut its dividend. Next question is from Safa, says... Uh, Joseph, how do you justify earnings with respect to the tax rate of REITs? The tax rate for REITs are much higher than other dividends, right? Okay, so REITs are taxed differently than other dividends. 
most dividends for like a company like Walmart or Target, they become what's called qualified dividends, which means they're taxed at the same rate of capital gains, 15%, sort of qualified dividends. REITs are never taxed at qual- as qualified dividends. They are taxed as income, meaning they're just, just a tax as if you got paid more in your salary. But it's not as bad as it looks because most companies pay corporate income tax. They pay corporate taxes. REITs get a ton of tax exemptions before they pay you the dividends. So although you're paying a little bit more in taxes, they already skip taxes on the end of the company. So it's, you know, it, I think it evens out a little bit more than people give it credit for. I do not think that REITs have such bad tax treatment. They avoid taxes on the front end. You pay a little bit more on the back end when you receive the dividend. Most companies, they pay more taxes on the front end. You pay less taxes on the back end. So to me, it, it's not as big of a deal as people make it out to be. I'm not going to worry about the taxes when they're paying 6%, 7% yields. Abdel says, according to what I've read, when Disney Plus is up, Disney is going to take their content out of Netflix and put it on their own streaming service. That will be a lot of content that Netflix subscribers will be missing out. So I see Disney Plus becoming as strong or even stronger than Netflix at some point. I don't know if I'm correct, but that's my prediction. So I've said that Disney is not too much of a competitor to Netflix. Now, again, if you did a Venn diagram and you got to see how much they overlapped in content, They do overlap a little bit. Disney does have quite a bit of content on Netflix, but I think they target mostly different crowds. Disney targets family-friendly entertainment. Netflix, the majority of their big stuff is not family-friendly. I think the bigger competitors to Netflix are Amazon Prime, HBO, Apple's entering into it, like Hulu, YouTube TV, all these ones where they don't have family-friendly content. They're just going for the majority masses the college students, everybody, all the adult entertainment, all that type of stuff. So I think Disney has carved out a nice niche in the family game where other streaming services haven't really hit. I think the more like adult-centered, mature content, I think that's a really crowded space right now. So Disney has, I think, a more uncrowded space. I think Netflix is fighting a really crowded battle right now. And Disney's not the only one taking their content off Netflix. I mean, you can look at it in Netflix over the next three years. They have a lot of different licensed content that has been announced that they're going to be taking it off to start their own streaming services. So I think Netflix really has to produce their own content and it has to be good. I haven't been too impressed by Netflix's originals. I think Disney comes out with a much bigger, better originals, more rememberable ones. I think even HBO comes out with better originals. So Netflix does a shotgun approach and they just come out with a lot of content. But I wouldn't be putting my my money on Netflix right now. I think there's too many threats. Taking their content off of Netflix is definitely a big threat. Then I got an email. Hector says, is there any particular reason you prefer Texas Roadhouse over McDonald's? So that's right. I have Texas Roadhouse in my portfolio. I don't have McDonald's. This is pretty basic reasoning for me. I thought that they both pay about the same dividend yield, but McDonald's is already everywhere. So I don't know if McDonald's could expand at the same rate that Texas Roadhouse can. And I think that Texas Roadhouse has been expanding more, has more potential for dividend growth. McDonald's over the past five years has averaged a 6% dividend growth per year, while Texas Roadhouse has averaged a 15%. So I just look at the future and I think that Texas Roadhouse has a little bit more room to grow. It's not a big position, but I just see a little bit more dividend growth there. Steven, this is the last question I'll do. Steven says, from an email, he said, what are your thoughts on Bitcoin slash crypto? Okay, so 
Bitcoin and crypto, I'm not going to put my money in them ever. You'll never see me investing in them. I work in technology. I can appreciate the technology. I just don't see them ever really practically being used as a real currency that massive amounts of goods are bought and sold with them. It's too volatile of a currency, so you can't really buy and sell anything from it. And the whole reason I like dividend stocks is because even if they do nothing, they're paying a yield. They're, they're, they're producing something. They, there's something behind it. It's like owning a farm. At the end of the season, you're going to get, you know, you're going to get your produce. Uh, you're going to get the yield from the farm. With Bitcoin and crypto, they produce nothing. They're just totally speculative. The only value that's in them is the value of hoping somebody else will pay more for it. With all my holdings, the value could go to zero as far as hoping somebody else could pay more for it. The stock market could just close and I would just keep collecting dividends. There's val- there's inherent value in these companies. They have value where they're producing something, they're creating something, they're creating value. Bitcoin and crypto, the only real value they have is the value of artificial scarcity. That's really all it is. And I don't love that idea. I It doesn't fit with my thinking, my methodology behind the way that I invest. I look for things that they have value in and of themselves. It doesn't have to be value that somebody else gives it. So even if people didn't value the companies that I have, they're creating cash flow by themselves. They don't need other people to value them. That's how I look at it. And, and Bitcoin and crypto are kind of the complete opposite of that. Okay, so the the very last thing, I know this has nothing to do with investing, but I had to share my opinion on this. I saw the Game of Thrones. Before I go into this, big spoiler alert. If you have not seen Game of Thrones, dip out now. If you don't even watch the show, I'm not going to go over anything else investing, so you can dip out now as well, and I'll see you on the next episode. But for the rest of you that are interested to know my take on this, I just want to share what I thought of it and then what I thought the ending should be. So overall, I thought it was a very disappointing ending. And I know that my opinion on that is pretty common. But I mean, this is a show where they've got, everybody's gone to such huge lengths to get the throne. They've killed each other and, and fought wars over each other. And then it's decided in a little council meeting. And it just reminded me of like your local city council, you know, voting on where they're going to put a park or something. It just seems so anticlimactic to have this epic of a drama decided by Tyrion Lannister, who's a prisoner, giving this little speech and talking about, oh, we need a great story. And I think Bran is probably the one of the most least interesting characters in the entire series, and he ends up with it. Uh, I just thought it was a really boring end to the season overall. Just very boring, very uninspiring. And I personally think that I have a better way of ending it. So if I was to write the series, if I was going to write the ending particularly, this is what I would have changed. So everything's the same leading up to Danny's death. You got Jon Snow. He went in there and he has his beef with Grey Worm. He saw him in the streets killing those soldiers. And then he goes and he talks to Tyrion. And I like the part where Tyrion convinced him to kill Danny, right? He talked some sense into him, said Danny's an evil dictator at this point. And he ends up killing her exactly like he did. But this is where I change things. I would make it so that Grey Worm has this uneasy feeling about Jon Snow. He knows that Jon Snow's kind of torn up about this. So Grey Worm followed him up to Danny, And he comes in, Grey Worm comes in with his troops and his army behind him right after Jon Snow kills Danny. And Grey Worm, seeing Danny be killed by Jon Snow, makes Grey Worm totally enraged. And he just got made the master of war or whatever title that Danny gave him. And he just saw his queen get murdered by Jon Snow. And so Grey Worm takes his sword and charges after Jon Snow. And then Jon Snow, of course, takes out his sword and they fight. And then all the troops are watching Jon Snow and Grey Worm fight, right? 
And then what I would do is I would make it so that it, it appears like Grey Worm is going to kill Jon Snow. And now you have the audience afraid of Jon Snow's life, right? Grey Worm's getting the best of him, beating him up, slashing him, like drawing blood. Like he, he's, he's about to kill him. And then right when Grey Worm's about to win, the dragon comes up and does his massive wing flaps exactly like he did. But instead of just blowing fire on the Iron Throne, the dragon sees that Danny's dead. And the dragon's so ticked off and enraged by that, that he blows fire on both Grey Worm and Jon Snow. And Jon Snow lives because he's got that Targaryen blood and he's the heir to the king. And Grey Worm turns into a pile of ashes there. And all the troops, Grey Worm's unsullied army, sees that their leader was just murdered by the dragon. And that Jon Snow's immune to the dragon. So now they realize that Jon Snow is the king. And that he's the one that has the dragon by his side. And so they're not going to attack Jon Snow. And I think at the very least, even if Jon Snow gave up the throne after that, it would have revealed that he's the king. I mean, this whole... And it would have made it so that Grey Worm, who was a terrible person by the end, he was slaughtering the Lannisters in the street after they had already been captured. He wasn't a good character. It would have gave some closure to him being killed in the end. And that would have closed up the whole line of of Jon Snow being the rightful heir people would have known. So I think that would have been a much more exciting ending. From there, I don't even think Jon Snow would need to take the throne. He could give it to somebody else. But just them knowing that he's the rightful heir to the throne, I think would have been a much more compelling ending than what we got. Him being banished to the north like a loser, having Grey Worm just ride off after being a, a pretty evil leader. I mean, he was killing people, innocent people in the street for no reason. So I don't know. I think that would have been a much better ending. I still think out of all these shows, the best ending I've ever seen in a TV series is Breaking Bad. I don't think that's ever going to be beat. But anyways, that's how I would have wrote it. I hope you guys enjoyed this. I will catch you next time. I'll be doing another portfolio update this week. And you guys have a good one.